Good Friday morning. Today is October 28th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, the program where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures to which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thanks for listening. If this is your first time joining us, then welcome. And for those of you who are coming back for more, that's wonderful. If you've been blessed by our program, be sure to share it with others by encouraging them to listen over the air on AM850 in St. Louis, online at kfuo.org, or through any podcasting app. As always, Thy Strong Word is brought to you by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Learn more about their translating and publishing work at lhfmissions.org. And while you're online, send me an email too. Ask a question, make a comment, just say hello. It helps me to hear from you because, as I've been saying, you too are a part of the conversation. Email me at pastorboo at gmail.com. Well, as you likely know by now, if you've been listening for any bit of time, on Fridays, I like to share feedback or questions listeners have sent in. This morning, I'd like to give a shout out to Jacob Durfee, who lives in Colchester, Connecticut. Jacob is only 10 years old and is a regular listener of the show, and he just loves all things church and Bible. So hi, Jake, and thanks for being such a faithful young man. Our text for this morning is Daniel chapter 11, verses 1 through 35. It's our penultimate episode in uh, Daniel. And this vision, which began in the last chapter, continues for Daniel here in 11 and through the end of the book. The prophet sees now three kings, followed by a wealthy fourth king. Now, the identities of these kings are dubious, but then Daniel foretells the rise of a mighty king in verse 3, which is undoubtedly Alexander the Great. Daniel's prophetic descriptions of historical events, which have since come to pass, astounds even unbelievers. But to fully appreciate everything going on in this chapter, it's helpful if you have a good command and understanding of what essentially is a complex time in ancient history. Still, being God's Word, we can rely on the Holy Spirit to enlighten our hearts and minds to that which He would have us know, regardless of how familiar we are with the likes of Cyrus and Cambyses and Darius and Xerxes and Alexander and Antiochus. Well, either way, with me today to help us make sense of this part of the vision— is the Reverend Stephen Tice, pastor of Emmanuel Lutheran Church in New Wells, Missouri. Pastor Tice, welcome back to Thy Strong Word. Thank you very much. Appreciate it, sir. How are you today? Well, I'm doing wonderful. I uh, I hope you've been cracking the history books because that's definitely necessary for our text for this morning. I'm I'm looking through it and I'm thinking, I think the listeners should probably open up their Bibles for this one. We're going to have to take it just a little chunk at a time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this is one of those fascinating things about uh, the, the book of Daniel. Ezekiel has this same property, and also then Revelation. They are explaining visions or recording visions without necessarily always explaining. But the, the challenge is to, as we use the term in, in academic circles, this is called apocalyptic literature, or it can also be referred to as end times literature. But, but to recognize it's a it's a long view of, of history compressed into a short account. And so this sometimes messes people up because they don't quite know where to draw the division marks. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, 
the the term that could also be used is a proleptic prophecy, and that's a prophecy that gets fulfilled time and again. So Daniel will mention things that will connect to uh, Antiochus the fourth, for instance, but but really mm -hmm. are a type of the Antichrist to come, uh, or who has come, or who will continue to come, and and you know we'll 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 hash those out as we go over the next couple episodes. But also one great description that I was given when I was in seminary, which has helped me because I grew up in the mountains, North Carolina, especially hit home. When you're uh -huh. looking, let's say you're at the top of a mountain and you're, you're looking across a mountain range, you can see all the individual peaks of the mountains. And so yeah. far as you're concerned, they look very, very close, but there's distances between these peaks. And it's hard from your point of view to know how far those distances are. They could be close or they could be far. And as the prophet is given a vision of, say, one king conquering another king and then another king rising, he sees them like these mountaintops. They're all sort of smashed together. It's difficult for him to understand, unless he's told, uh, how much time passes between each of those events. And we see that even as we try to take the events of chapter 11 and connect it to points in history. But it's still worth doing because it's yep. such a testimony to the to the accuracy of the scriptures. And I think the key for us is to recognize that when we look at this, as I mentioned earlier with Revelation, some of it is near to the point of the vision being given. And so you and I would say historically close to the author and, and you and I look back and see the mountain peak behind us. There are more <laughs> right. in front of us that we haven't gotten to yet. And, and the challenge is to recognize when you pass a peak, how do you know? Well, go back to Scripture and, and search and see what it tells you, see what it confirms. And, and uh, we'll do a little bit of that today, and then I'm going to talk a bit about the what we call the intertestamental literature that doesn't get included in most Lutheran and or Protestant Bibles, but is still valuable for us to make sense of the life of the people of God between the end of the prophet Malachi and the arrival of John the Baptist. Yes, uh, 100%. So folks who have an Apocrypha in their home, go ahead and crack that open to First and Second Maccabees. I tell you what, before we head into that, would you start us off in prayer before we go too much farther? Absolutely. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Almighty and gracious God, you give to us what we need to know. Frequently, we seek to know what you have not told us. When it is your will to reveal, you do so. When you hold back because of your great wisdom and divine care for us, keep us from being frustrated that we don't see all the details in a way that we can understand. You held back information about the arrival of Jesus when he came as an infant in Bethlehem, although you told plenty of different times that it would happen that way. When he was sent to the cross, and even after the resurrection, the disciples still asked, will you at this time restore the kingdom, not knowing exactly what you were doing? Lord, we don't always know what you do, but we always know that what you do is for our good and that you have promised to bring to us a new life in Christ in a place where death cannot touch us. As we look forward to the arrival of that day, help us each day to point others to Jesus, who is the light at the end of the world. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, brother, what would you like to get out in the open before we start reading into the text? I do believe I'm going to take it chunk by chunk, 
Um, but maybe we want to mm -hmm. catch up a little bit before we do that. Sure. What we have here going on is, is the vision that Daniel had, and he's been praying for three weeks for God to give him an answer to it. And chapter 10 tells us that the answer arrives as an angel comes and gives him this data and announces that he was opposed on the way by the princes of this world. I think it's so important for you and me, all of us as Christians, to recognize that the princes of this world are still at work today. A lot of the violence, destruction, crime, what we tend to call inhumanity, although it's fallen humanity at work, in the world today is still that struggle going on. There is a spiritual struggle going on all the time that, that to a certain extent, is invisible to us. What God does with this vision explained to Daniel is he opens up that he is the one allowing certain things to happen, and none of them happen without his permission. That's so important to keep in mind as we walk our way through what ends up being the desecration of the temple and then the restoration of the temple so that when Christ arrives, the temple is there. But now, Christ having come, the temple is the living people of God. And this is a concept that is constant through Scripture once you get to the, the back end where Peter talks about living stones built up into a, a house for God. But this concept of God using a, the temple as a way to identify his presence with the people and the historical loss of the physical temple didn't change God's promise. When we see things fall apart in our lives, in our nation, in our world, we have to remember that God keeps his promises and he is true. And so we are safe no matter how bad things are. That's a key concept, I think, in this particular vision interpretation. I would agree. You know, God is obviously in control. God wins in the end. He passes that victory to you through Christ. Uh, but as we read these things, we're going to be reminded of a lot of the turmoil that happens throughout history and then will continue to happen until Christ returns. Uh, let's read the text. Let's just get a few verses out. And I'm just thinking the first four verses. I'll be reading Daniel chapter 11, verses 1 through 4 in the English Standard Version. And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has risen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. All right, that ends this first part of the text. Uh, take us mm -hmm. through that. What What's going on? He's showing us the truth. This is the angel speaking. Right. This is, this is the one who comes with the interpretation of the message and says, this is what I was strengthened in this first year of the reign of Darius the Mede. And there was a, a, a sequence of three kings prior to the arising of this king who, well, basically stirs uh, up against the kingdom of Greece. Well, this would be a rise of a guy called Xerxes. And then the process of Xerxes coming along, he is succeeded by one who defeats him. Xerxes loses to the Greeks. And then 
the one you and I call Alexander the Great arrives. And part of the part of the way we know how to parse this together is from First Maccabees, but also in the process of just looking at history. The key phrase I think is this one: "His kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds." In verse four, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled. And this is really a historical um, necessity for us to get to the point of. Jesus being born in Roman territory under Roman law so that there's a census being taken and that by the time his his crucifixion is enacted, he is not killed in a manner other than the Roman execution of crucifixion. So this is God using history to bring about a ruler in a particular location who will function in a way to fulfill God's plan and prophecy. And so this fourth ruler is is Alexander the Great, who does not have any heirs. And this reminds me of the psalm, trust that, that we should not put our trust in princes. And the hymn says, trust not in princes, they are but mortal, earthborn they are, and soon decay. Well, he died in his early 30s, leaving no heir. He ruled greater territory than anyone before him, and yet when he dies, it's all gone. And this is God using this man to set up the kind of succession conflict that allows the political intrigue to get us to a guy called Herod ruling in Judea when Jesus is born. But the Romans then being in charge of Judea when Jesus is killed. And all of this is God working history out to arrange for our salvation. So easy for us to forget that in everyday life. I know I do it all the time. And I have to remind myself when I get frustrated with what happens with political movements or or economy, or any other things going on in our world today, that it's the forces of evil trying to defeat the forces of good, and God won't let that happen. Doesn't mean suffering won't occur as we look through this whole text, suffering's obvious. But the, these kingdoms were plucked up, and they go to others even after he passes them on. So um, it's a sequential um Successions of the throne and then raggling back and forth over territories that ultimately leads to the historical setting that Luke gives us in, in his gospel uh, when Quirinius was governor of Syria and the first census takes place. That historically noted stuff that Luke puts in comes out of this historical sequence right here. Yeah, I think that's a, a wonderful thing to look back on. You know, we often, when we are in the midst of history as it unfolds, it's hard for us to see the uh, the pattern that God is weaving through all the different strands. I've heard it described as sort of looking at the back of a tapestry. You know, you have all these little strings, and you don't know exactly where they all come together in the image. But if you were mm -hmm. to flip the tapestry around, naturally you see this is what it all uh, ends up being, and this is what you're connecting it to Luke. What I think is great, though, too, is just the pure historicity of this vision. In fact, it is so accurate that many critical scholars want to date these writings of Daniel till the time period after they occurred because they look at them and they say, there's just no way that he could have known or connected these things um, before they happened. You know, the mighty king being Alexander the Great, soon as he arisen, mm -hmm. his kingdom shall be broken and divided. It has this toward the four winds of heaven, so it's divided in four, and we know that Alexander's son, Alexander the Fourth, uh, ruled for a little bit. So did his half brother Philip, but they were murdered, 
uh, very shortly after, really never really ruled very much because history has um, shown that what really happened is that these four generals uh, would then fight over the territory. They're all trying to be the successor to Alexander and skipping a lot of complicated history. They ended up basically dividing the kingdom, and some of them were, were friendly yeah. with each other, some not. But we see that, yeah, Alexander looked like the guy who could never be beaten, the, the king of the world so much, you know, almost like Nebuchadnezzar. Right? He had such vast power, and yet his rise and his kingdom was made so quickly, and it was also quickly taken away from him. So connecting that to, you know, who's the greatest world power today? Well, I guess we Americans would probably say us. And if we did, then we would say, well, you know, are we the ones who people might look at and say, there's never going to be a time when the United States doesn't exist or doesn't wield power. And if we mm -hmm. just look into history, we see that's not true. We have to trust oh, in God, not in princes, and certainly look to him for our providence. But yeah, so we see this, that yep. it was so clear and so connected to the events in history yeah, that people even denied that this was a prophecy. They said, nope, he had to have said these things after the fact. What do you think about that? Yeah. Well, I think it, it, it's part of the whole uh, problem of, of what's described here is that the princes of those various places, uh, you know, Michael helped him to fight against the prince of Persia. Those, those demonic forces, I use that term intentionally, fallen angels, evil angels, demons, are still at work in the world trying to defeat the truth. They're still trying to fight against the people of God. And so if the message says God predicted this, God told it would happen, here's how it happened, God was right, the liar can't let that stand. He has to attack it. Otherwise, he's proven to be the liar. And so people are deceived into thinking that they're wise when, in fact, they are fools. And Scripture is explicit, says that very thing. And I remember Paul's epistles as he writes to Timothy and and the Galatians, and, and he says, you know, who's bewitched you to the Galatians? And then uh, he, he says that to Timothy, beware, there are false prophets have risen even now, so pass this on as reliable and true, and, and hand it to others who will teach it consistently so that the word continues to be passed. Now, the word of God remains forever. You know, this, the little logo that uh, Gustavus Adolphus had on his shields and on his armor, a verbum dei, Verbum de dominum manat in aeternum, the VDMA, as we say. This right. is this is really what's going on here. This word of God lasts forever, and we look at the the European history of the Reformation and ask how could there possibly have been good come out of that? And yet today we see the Christian faith spread throughout the world. The missionary efforts that came out of the Reformation partly because people were persecuted and went to places that otherwise they never would have gone. And I think what you were mentioning earlier, uh, the scholars who want to explain it away, it's because they've been taught that no power exists that can know the future. And if they admit that there is a power that does know the future, then they are accountable to that power, and our human sinful nature never wants to do that. But by the work of the Holy Spirit, you and I have been led to believe what God says, and we don't get any credit for that. God did it all. So we have to be consistent that we don't blame people for their false understanding as being worse than we are, but at the same time we stand up and speak the truth and then let the Holy Spirit do the changing because he always does. The kingdom of Alexander the Great ends up being broken into these four pieces by his generals, 
but really only two are featured in the verses that follow. These two uh, were the ones who had the most impact on Israel and eventually lead to, as you pointed out earlier, to the setting the stage for the coming of the Christ. Uh, I'd like to read verses 5 through 9 to add them to the conversation. Here we go. Then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule, and his authority shall be great, a great authority. After some years they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure, but she shall be given up, and her attendants, he who fathered her, and he who supported her in those times. And from a branch, from her roots, one shall arise in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold. And for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. Well, there we go at the end of verse 9. And so we've been presented with uh, two of these four, the king of the south and the king of the north. Yeah, and what, what we have here is the struggle is going to then become the the continual background for the people of, of God, the nation of Israel. Uh, when they return from the Babylonian captivity, they build the temple again. But now they've got these two warring nations to the north of them, Syria. That would be the, uh, the Seleucids dynasty. And that comes out with the Antiochus. And he fights the Ptolemies, who are the Egyptians. And, you know, that's the family line, by the way, of Cleopatra, who ends up with Mark Antony rebelling against the Romans and all that sidelight, if you will, to the biblical accounts. I say sidelight because it's really not the main story. Uh, but it's historically significant that that was the family group that's involved in Egypt. This king of the south is the Egyptian, who then eventually raids Syria. And when he does that, as we're told in the text, plunders their temple. And, and this was a common activity for three simple reasons. One is you take all the valuable stuff out of the temple because you can use it yourself. If you melt it down or whatever, use it for financing. Number two, it proves that your God is greater than the God you've conquered, and, and so you get to do a little theological boasting. But the third primary reason is it destroys the ability of the king or the ruler of that local territory to claim that his citizens should appeal to their God. And Nebuchadnezzar did the same thing when he, for lack of a better label, sacked and then destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. See, your God couldn't stop me from, from taking his stuff. Therefore, he's no, no God that you can trust. So this, this trust in physical objects, and we see this shows up in the Reformation period, and, and the, the apology, the Augsburg Confession gets into this relating to Daniel 11 later on. The, the whole idea of, of the worship involving certain symbols or certain representations of God's presence, the symbols are fine as long as they teach you something, but when you begin to trust the symbols instead of the God they, they connect to, it becomes idolatry. And so God's allowing the idolaters to destroy their, their idols back and forth. It's a back and forth destruction of idolatry that God permits to go on here. And I, I would say intentionally he's doing it to show these various rulers that their gods really are nothing. Yes, absolutely. We see here, too, 
this connection to history, the king of the south, as you pointed out, is Ptolemy of Egypt, and the king of the north is Seleucus. But then they aren't the only ones featured in the next several texts. These kings are uh, represented first by themselves and then by their successors. So the names change uh, even though he's not giving us the names. right? I would suspect that mm -hmm. if he were to have given us the names, then maybe the critics could have uh, some sort of – not that God can't reveal people's names, but you know what I'm saying. He's not, yeah. he's not so on the nose that people should really be suspicious, but it is is so much on the nose in terms of oh, yeah. uh, we see here, uh, you know, the daughter. We that's um, that's uh, Bernice, mm -hmm. right? So Bernice is married to right. Antiochus yeah. to recreate an alliance, um, and that it, it just it reads like a soap opera too, you know. Oh, in yeah. verse in verse six, um, after some years they shall make an alliance. The daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement, but she shall not retain the strength of her arm. And he, all this stuff, you know, as I read, you know, Antiochus uh, marries uh, Ptolemy's daughter, Bernice, but then he divorces mm -hmm. Bernice, remarries his former wife, Laodice, who then poisons him and then kills Bernice. And then installs her own son, Seleucus the Second, and so it's a it's it's amazing. And we get these details from history, but I like to draw them into the biblical text because I just want to remind people, as I've said many times on this show, these are real things happening to real people in history, and it's such yeah. an important reminder of uh, how God interacts with us. Sure, and he he's always involved in history. I think it's so important to remember that. Scripture explicitly states that God is the one who appoints rulers and the times in which they rule. They don't appoint themselves. They don't conquer kingdoms because they're so great. They conquer kingdoms because that's the way God wants it to happen for his purposes. And, you know, some people say, well, that makes us puppets of God, and he's just a puppet master. Well, he is our master, that's for sure. But we're not puppets. We're his creation. And in his creation, he remains the ruler, the one in charge, although he gives us authority to make choices. And, you know, this always reminds me, I like to share this historical footnote, and I'm going to do it right now, even though it's, you might think it doesn't fit, but it does particularly. Uh, during World War II, uh, the, the Germans, the Nazis, developed something they called the, uh, the V-1 and the V-2 rockets. These were rocket-propelled uh, bombs, missiles, as we would call them, and they launched them from the continent of Europe into Great Britain. And uh, the production of those was a limited number per day, and the ruler of Germany at that time was the chancellor. Adolf Hitler became the Fuhrer, and he insisted that each day's production be fired at the end of each day to demoralize and, and destabilize uh, the, the population of England. But his military advisors all said, no, you should stockpile a month's production, fire that in one day, and destroy the infrastructure, and then you can invade. And he kept telling them, no, I want this psychological stuff. I'll do it my way. God allowed this lunatic to overrule the intelligence of the military so that God could produce the outcome he wanted, which was that Great Britain would be able to survive, and then Hitler and his regime of terror and destruction could be overthrown. But it's one of those things where God allows Hitler to be in charge so Hitler can do it wrong, as dumb as that sounds. No, no, but the the catch here though is that he doesn't give us a prophet to foretell that, so we can only know no. a lot of these things after the fact. 
Um, so, yeah, I think it's important for us to look back. And when we see even horrible hearts, horrible times of our history, to remember that even then God is in control, you know, to let God off the hook in those matters, to say things like, well, God must God did nothing because of all these horrible things were happening or God had nothing to do with them is to right. deny God's mm-hmm. sovereignty and his power. Yeah. Yeah. And he is in charge. You and I, as you mentioned earlier with that weaving, the tapestry, we can't see the front side of the tapestry. We just see the loose ends on the back, and the image isn't clear until the Lord lifts us to the other side. And that'll happen when Jesus comes back. But in the meantime, he did give us his word, as you pointed out. And here the angel is showing Daniel, here's the vision interpreted for you. You saw it. Here's what's going on. God will bring about the right purpose. And Daniel still says he's bothered incessantly by the terror this vision brings him. Well, I'll tell you what, let's take a moment to uh, contemplate all the things that we've talked about as we pause and listen to these messages. Dear listener, don't go anywhere. Just a few moments when we return, Pastor Tice and I will continue our discussion of Daniel 11. See you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me today is the Reverend Stephen Tice, pastor of Emmanuel Lutheran Church in New Wells, Missouri. All right, Pastor Tice, before the break, we were talking about how God is active in history. Sometimes we have prophets for like this, this situation we have in Daniel chapter 11, where he's foretelling what will happen. And then sometimes we have to look back and see how God was active which tells us that we must trust God at all times. Uh, anything else you want to add about these previous verses before I read verses 10 through 19? Well, I think uh, the, the one thought I want to try to hang on to is that the people who are involved here are seeking their own purposes, having no idea that God is using them to prepare for the coming of the Christ. The The whole issue I mentioned earlier about the, the desolation of the, abs- the absolute desolation of the temple that will be referred to later, this abomination. That had to happen for the temple to become something that could be present for Christ. It had to be restored. You know, the celebration of Hanukkah reflects that. And as we approach Christmas, I think it's always legitimate for us to say the, the Feast of the Dedication, not the things built up around it per se in our own culture, but the whole understanding that the temple was rededicated is a reminder to us that God dedicates us again and again to his own service, even after we have sinned. He calls us to repentance, and then he cleanses us. He lifts us up and makes us new in Christ so that you and I continue to serve as 
the temple of the Holy Spirit. You know, we use that phrase in our in our committal service at, at a cemetery. I think we need to continue to use that phrase in our daily life, that God's at work in us, because the strength is not in me, and the power of God's at work in his baptized people. So we have this, this ongoing comfort in our baptism. So we hear the phrase that's coming up here, the Holy Land, or the uh, the this special land of God. Um, you know, we recognize the glorious land. This glory is in Christ, not in the physical land itself. And so we see that in our own lives. It's Christ, not anything we've done or any place we live. Excellent. So as I read 10 through 19, uh, the very first mention will be of sons. That's Seleucus III and Antiochus III, and they're fighting against uh, Ptolemy IV. All right, here we go. His sons shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through, and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north. And he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. For the king of the north shall rise again a multitude greater than the first, and after some years he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies. In those times many shall rise against the king of the south, and the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Then the king of the north shall come, and throw up siege works, and take a well-fortified city. And the forces of the south shall not stand, or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him. And he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. He shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. Afterward, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them. But a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his face back toward the fortress of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found." Okay, wow, lots of stuff here. We're ended with verse 19, and we're ending with uh, yep. uh, Antiochus III at the end. But so, uh, yeah, what's going on here, brother? Well, we're looking at this, this conflict between the kings of the north, the kings of the south. We're being told about the battle back and forth, and they, they seem to have a, a period in time where they have a cooperation, a treaty made, and then the treaty is broken, and one's plotting against another. Uh, the thing that struck me in verse 11, the king of the south moved with rage shall come out and fight. It wasn't that he responded based on a, uh, an analysis of the military benefit. It was his emotion that moved him to kill, to attack, moved with rage. And and I think the, the picture here is, of, I'm going to use the word, egomaniacs fighting back and forth. And they're doing it over the land, the glorious land. And God, God had said this would happen if they ever followed false gods. The land of promise would become a desolate spot. Well, this, this fighting is going back and forth across Israel. They're not fighting just in 
Syria or just in Egypt. They're fighting back and forth across Israel. The conflict falls in the presence of God's people, and you and I see that today. We see the conflicts today affecting God's people, not necessarily aimed directly at them, but still affecting them. And I think the the whole phrase here that he's going to come through, and the indication is that he's going to get some of the people of Israel uh, involved in this, but in the long run, the, the king himself is not going to win by military might. He's going to be removed from the scene by the plotting behind the military endeavors. And I think this reminds us that human beings, you and I are human beings, right, have their own motives and their own plans. And sometimes what happens is others come up and, and stab us in the back. And that's what happens to one of these kings. He's, he's turning his back, his face back toward the fortress, but doesn't even get there. Uh, he's, he's going to be defeated, not by the enemy, but by people within his own circle. And human treachery is a constant problem. And we'd like to think that we always know who the enemy is. It reminds me of something that Walt Kelly wrote years ago in his uh, comic strip, uh, Pogo. We have met the enemy and he is us. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's, it's part of the challenge to recognize that yeah. sometimes we are our own worst enemy. That's very true. That's very true. You know, as we, and we find ourselves fighting against our own selves, our own sinful natures, and against the world that's constantly calling us to return to it and its ways. And in those cases, you know, there's no one to blame. We can only rely on God. Yet we have here Antiochus the Third, the Great, <laughs> um, and yeah, he's having all this success against Egypt and Greece. But then, yeah, by the end, by the and this is nothing to remember. This isn't as as I'm trying to point out here. This isn't just the same two guys. These are their sons. We're 150, right. 200 years later since we began this text, and so Antiochus the third, he um he's he's getting all this 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 conquering land, and he, he gets defeated um in uh, Magnesia by the Romans, and this is around. Uh, 190 uh, that's in western Turkey and so in verse 19 he shall turn his face back toward the fortress of his own land you know he's heading back home and then he gets defeated and he gets the gains taken away and mm-hmm. they um, he he's he has to then pay debts to the Romans and so Antiochus the third and I just think this is interesting is not in the text but it's in history he's killed while looting a temple to pay what he owes the Romans after this defeat in verse 19. So um, mm-hmm. we, we follow that up by verse 20, which ends up being Seleucus IV imposing taxes on the Jews and on the temple to pay his obligations to Rome. So you hinted at the coming of Rome at the beginning of our reading, and here we see them making, making their, their in, uh, inroads into these kingdoms, and they're going to definitely be a power to contend with. But as you mm-hmm. pointed out, all of this is by God's command and by God's uh, design. Yes, and I think you've highlighted something highly important for us, is that the worship life of these people is built around a particular building, a particular God who's stuck in a particular place, I'm going to put it that way. And God, again and again, says to the people of Israel, I'm not limited to one place. And he has them build first a portable worship site because he says, hey, I'm not stuck in one spot. I'll go where I want. 
later David and, and Solomon want to make it a permanent structure in their capital city. But as I mentioned before, God takes living stones and makes us his temple. And this paying tribute, because your God wasn't strong enough to keep you in power with enough money, you go to another country to rob their God to pay the tribute, <laughs> and it doesn't work either. Right, right. Yeah, and, and that's what happens when you're appealing also to false idols, when you're putting your hope, faith, and trust in other things. Uh, and I think it also reminds us that, you know, when we think of, say, I think back to Nebuchadnezzar taking the gods, um, or sorry, taking the uh, vessels out of the true God's temple, you know, mm -hmm. he does this for a lot of political and religious reasons, but he also does it as a show of power. These vessels typically are also valuable, right? It's spoils of war. Right. And Old I think, it, yeah, and it reveals... I think the inward motivation of, of worldly thinking, and that is it's not even about honoring their gods. In, in the false god tradition, it's about having their gods serve them in a way that they can become powerful or that they can become wealthy or they can become you know, uh, uh, kings or influential. And yeah. we must be mm -hmm. careful that when we appeal to our god that we're not – doing things to try to bolster ourselves, but rather to submit to his will in service of our neighbor. It's just so strikingly different the way the false gods operate, whether those false mm -hmm. gods are the ones we see today or the ones from history and the way that we should treat um, God and his service to us. Yeah, and I think you've highlighted something very important for us as Christians, that when God wanted us to know what he was truly like, he came and died for us. He came and served us. And now, as you're pointing out, our call is to imitate Christ, which means instead of being puppet masters manipulating God, we recognize that God has already given us what we need to be in service to one another. And now we don't have to get God to give it to us. We just have, have as you mentioned, this, this prayer of humility to ask God to show us how to do it his way. And he will through his word and through his church. And, and that's why uh, that's why the church stands even today, even with persecution, it, it's still standing. Yeah. Anything else before we read the rest of our text? I think again, you mentioned that, that these these princes, these rulers, are in sequence. We're moving from mountaintop to mountaintop, is what's happening, mm -hmm. and and we're not seeing you know, down deep into the valleys. You can find that in other places, but keep in mind that as, as you pointed out, God. She's all of it at one time. You and I can only see one thing at the moment we're in it. The other is either not here yet or in the past. God sees it all outside of time. And so for us to remember that this is the key concept of an eternal God, he is not limited as you and I are limited. So he's always got the good coming for us in Christ later. Maybe now too, for sure, in the gift of forgiveness baptism, the Lord's Supper, the people of the church gathered in, in presence of God around his word. But it's coming at the end when we get the imperishable, the unfading, the, the permanent city. And all of this is a reminder that none of these kings could build a permanent kingdom, not a single one of them could build a permanent kingdom. None. Zero. The British Empire. There was a phrase years ago, the sun never sets on the British Empire. And then after World War One, it collapsed. World War Two, it fell apart completely. Human Human kingdoms, human nations never survive, but God and his word last forever. 
Let's read verses 20 through the rest of the chapter. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an extractor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. In his place shall arise a contemptible person, to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, and he shall become strong with a small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province, and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. And then he shall stir up his power in his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for plots shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him, his army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for the end is yet to be at the time appointed. And he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant, and he shall work his will and return to his own land." Uh, at the time appointed, he shall come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. For the ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action, and the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. And when they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join them to them, pardon me, join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. Well, a lot of text here, um, especially with such little time that we have left. But basically, we have uh, mm -hmm. Seleucus Fourth. He has a very short reign. He's the one imposing taxes. He actually ends up being killed by poison. He gets poisoned by his chief tax collector, uh, probably who's in cahoots with Antiochus IV. Uh, Epiphanes, who rises now, mm -hmm. he's this contemptible person. Take it from there, Pastor, because he's a pretty important person in Jewish history. Yes, this contemptible person is the one who, in fact, defiles the temple in order to exert his own control, authority over the people of, of, of Israel, the, the nation of God. The temple has been rebuilt by uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. He comes into Jerusalem. He himself then offers this false worship in the temple he sacrifices an unclean animal a pig to the false gods he worships and in doing this he's corrupted the temple he's turned it into an impure place where worship can no longer be carried out as god instructed and i think it's important to recognize that uh, when we look at these 
phrases twice in this text, this chapter, we hear the word, the king was enraged and he responded. Their, their plans are thwarted. And what happens is in their emotional response, their only concern is their own feeling, not what it does to their citizens, not what it does to the communities they invade. None of this is based on what's best for others. It's always about me, me, me. And I have that same problem. Fortunately, the Holy Don't Spirit helps me fight against it. But yeah, but in the process, he does what, what he's doing. And as he does so, he is persecuting others so that when those wise stumble, they may be refined, purified, made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. And that phrase, at the appointed time, began this section, and the appointed time ends this section. It says God has appointed this. This isn't just happening. And for you and me, that's really important to to recognize that God said ahead of time, this is how I'm going to do it. I've got a plan laid out from before the foundation of the world. He laid a plan to bring Christ. So it, it sounds a bit trivial to say it this way, but None of this is circumstance. God has put it together to accomplish his purpose. And he's working the parts to get where he needs things to be. No one can do it without God permitting it. doesn't mean God wants it that way. It means he permits it that way. And so what happens in our lives when something goes wrong is very important to remember. The Lord permitted it. What was the Lord's purpose in permitting it? Well, we may not know for a time. But we do know that God is the one behind allowing it to happen. And it's so important to remember that, that it's so easy for me and for others. You know, recently went through uh, surgery, uh, had a torn rotator cuff, and I'm still in the, the recovery phase. And there are things I want to do and I can't. And the doctor says, well, if you do that, here's what you'll damage. And so I've got to step back and say, okay, what I want is not wrong per se, but it's harmful. Therefore, I won't do it. Boy, is that tough. And the Lord's the one who, here's what I want you to do, not because it's easy, but because it's good for you. And we see with the abomination of desolation, the temple is now going to be restored again so that Christ can arrive in it when he is at the right age for the firstborn to be redeemed by the sacrifice that Mary and Joseph bring the two turtle doves because they were poor people. So, you know, it's, it's all it's all tied together. It's just you gotta you gotta grab the history book and take the long view. So, because we've talked about history. this quite a, I was gonna say because we've talked about this quite a bit. Um, let's let's make make it extremely clear though, um, because I know what you're saying, but I just want to make sure no one misunderstands at home. So we're not talking about a fatalistic view of history. It's not as though God is um, like the puppet master you mentioned earlier. He's not dictating all that these things. He sometimes has in history. But not everything that happens is God saying, okay, it has to happen in this way. This is more of a view of um, God is able to use even the evil of the world to accomplish his will. So, uh, and maybe you're not saying that, but that's how I would phrase it. I would want to make sure people understood that, you know, we're not um, deterministic or fatalistic in that, you know, everything that happens, God has already decided that this is going to be how it happens and how it will happen. And there's nothing you can do. Um, and I, you made that clear to me, but I just want to make sure people at home know. Certainly, yeah. We, we talk about the permissive will of God and the intentional will of God. And and what he permits is not necessarily what he intends, but he can still use it because he's God and, and works around our our fumbles, if you will. And I think the, the key phrase here again is always the appointed time. There is an appointed time for some things to happen. And as long as 
what happens at the appointed time happens. The things in between, God, I'm going to use the term, permits us to use choices. But the appointed time comes, it's going to happen his way. Excellent. We just have a few minutes left in the show. I'd like to give all of those minutes to you. Um, summarize for us everything that's been going on and perhaps leave our uh, listeners mm-hmm. with a touch of the gospel that they could take home and give to their neighbors. Absolutely. I think what's, what's key here is to recognize that this is a vision that discomforts and distresses Daniel. And the angel comes to tell him, this vision is for your comfort. There's a promise here. Terrible things are happening. Terrible things will happen. But God is the God of human history. And he will always work for the good of his people. He brings rescue and restoration. And we see that in 1 Maccabees in particular, where the rescue and restoration takes place when the, the Seleucid dynasty is overthrown in Jerusalem, and God allows the temple to be rededicated again. In our time and in our lives, this is the same God who comes to us with a message of comfort and calm in Jesus Christ. The world around us, as Jesus said, is full of disruption, and in this world you will have suffering and much pain, but do not be afraid. I have overcome the world, and I give you peace. And this is what we have in Christ, God's peace, peace the world can't give, and peace the world cannot take away. And that's our gift in Jesus, and we have an internal inheritance laid up in heaven waiting for us. And at the time of the end, the king who comes again will restore all these things. In the meantime, the enemy will try to destroy us and try to destroy worship and try to destroy the relationship with God, but he does not win. God wins. I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Stephen Tice, pastor of Emmanuel Lutheran Church in New Wells, Missouri. Thank you, Pastor, for being on the show. You're very welcome. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be with you today. Thank you, too, dear listeners, for tuning in to Thy Strong Word. I've been your host, Pastor Phil Boo. Now, the angel's interpretation of the vision we've discussed this morning isn't over yet. We will pick it up again with Chapter 12, and that will happen on Monday. Monday also happens to be Reformation Day, All Hallows' Eve, so I hope that you'll tune in to join us. Um, It's going to be our final episode of the book of Daniel. Following that, on Tuesday, we begin just for a week the study of the book of James. James is an exciting text because it speaks to Christians who have already been saved but are looking for guidance on what it looks like to live the Christian life. James was called an epistle of straw by Luther, but a lot of people have misinterpreted that to think that he didn't think that James was valuable for the scriptures. But of course, we know it's important, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and valuable to us today. So one more episode of of, uh, this text uh, in Daniel on Monday. Tuesday begins James, and then after James, we'll start Revelation. So join us as we continue to study God's Word together. Until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray. Father, keep us in thy strong word.